Hi, welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour. I'm joined on the line by Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Uh, I'm doing uh, pretty good, all things considered. And bunker down in New York still, I presume. Jason Diamond, how are you? I am indeed here uh, in my bunker. We are <laughs> debunkering here in uh, Sydney because uh, we have the luxury of having had uh, most of the worst of it in the past. Though having said that, there's a spike in Victoria, but it's by US standards incredibly small. Um, I think we had a spike in just Victoria of a couple of hundred people in terms of infections, um, but that's obviously uh, nothing, you know, to be too proud of. But having said that, it's obviously not the kind of huge numbers that you're seeing in the US at the moment. So my We're number one. You guys. Yeah, always number one. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, no, I'm sorry that uh, the US is having such a bad time of it. But um, thanks for joining us for the show. And guys, uh, yeah, hopefully everyone listening is also able to uh, stay safe and well, though, statistically, I can't imagine that's actually true of all of our listeners. Some of you must be interned right now and, uh, you know, totally uh, got our respect and uh, our sympathy for, for that situation. Hey, um, Guys, we're going to look at the film Greyhound today, which is an interesting film. Uh, interesting for two reasons. One, it's a uh, kind of a, I guess I'd call it a dad war movie. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's not a huge budget. It's a sort of $50 million kind of film uh, about running the blockades in the Second World War across the Atlantic. It's interesting also because the film was going to be released in cinemas and because of COVID that we've just been discussing, it was decided to be released on uh, Apple TV. And so I'd like to discuss uh, like three things really today. I'd like to discuss obviously the visual effects as we always do. A little bit about this uh, weird situation where we're finding films like this going straight to effectively what we used to call straight to video. Uh, and then thirdly, I think I'd really like to get the uh, host's perspective on their favourite dad war movies of all times because um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good category. Um, but let's start uh, with your impressions of the film before we get to those three things. And Matt... What did you actually think of the film with uh, Tom Hanks uh, playing the, uh, the, uh, the captain leading, of course, uh, a ship that is covering a convoy going across the uh, Atlantic? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't deny it. I, I really enjoyed it. It's super entertaining. I think it's a, it's a great action movie, like in the tradition of, you know, wartime action films. And I think the visuals are really strong. I think the, um, the plot is, you know, it's, it's not heavy on plot, like in terms of character, rich character development. There's a little bit of character development here and there with the, certainly with the Tom Hanks character and with a couple of the sailors. And some of that stuff is a little clunky in the script, but I think overall the, the action and the uh, sort of the visual effects and the engagement and stuff, it makes for, I think it's just a little over 90 minutes uh, running time. And it makes for, I think, a, a super exciting escapist kind of ride that I think at least has, you know, I'm, I'm certain some historical accuracy. I don't know that um, there were a lot of crossings across the Atlantic where they sunk uh, four U-boats in a single crossing, but um, uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, it was really fun in a way that I didn't quite expect. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Jason, what do you think? Uh, I would agree. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would as well, although I do like war movies, you know, World War II and what have you. Um, it was interesting to what Matt said about character development because I saw it in retrospect 
in the pitch, you could say this was a single location movie because as much as you're in a wide expanse and you can see a lot, for the most part, you're on the boat. And for the most part, you're on the bridge. So it's almost, you know, like all the visual effects went out the, literally out the window and everything else, you know, was, was, you know, the deck and the, and the, 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 you know, the, the lives of the, of the crew and everything and how they're all, you know, the kid, you know, they're all sailors who are on, uh, you know, young, younger to middle experience. And here's a captain who's having his first crossing in command and, and his, you know, he's as green as they are in some respects. Um, and so I, I actually was, you know, pretty engaged. I, I do, I mean, I love me some Hanks. I was kind of wondering or wishing if like, this was like a Clive Owen or, a you know, um, like a grislier kind of, kind of guy. But again, I don't know if this was based on true story or what, if, you know, the real guy was like that or, you know, and, and Hanks wrote the screenplay as well. Yeah. So, so obviously, you know, that's cool. You know, you so do, you it was do. actually an adapted screenplay. So oh, was it, it was adapted off the novel, The Good Shepherd. Oh, right. Uh, which is C.S. Forrester. Forrester. Forrester's, yeah, really famous for doing, um, uh, completely different, um, uh, films or other books that turned into films, I guess the African queen being, uh, most notable among oh, them, wow. but also the, uh, the hornblower stuff around, um, you know, the Napoleonic war period. Right. But, uh, yeah, so I believe that the idea is that the good shepherd, um, you know, he was this sort of quite religious, uh, individual and, and not a gritty kind of captain right. in time. Okay. So that's yeah. what was being portrayed. There you go. I think it's interesting that Hanks does something like this. Like he's he's using his Playtone uh, production company, obviously in consultation with some of the other production companies involved. But um, he does this from time to time. These kind of smaller films that he has a much more direct in, involvement with. When clearly he could do anything he wants. Um, you know, one of the most successful actors of his entire generation. I thought it was interesting also in that these days when somebody makes a war film, it's almost politically correct to make sure that the Germans aren't portrayed as bad or evil um, or you're satirising that genre and making them super evil and super sort of whatever. But that, um, like how you portray Germans is in of itself a sort of a, I don't know if you'd agree with this, Matt, but like sometimes it's you know, like Spielberg decided he would stop portraying Nazis as buffoons um, and of course there's sort of the Schindler's List serious side of things. And then there's, well, maybe the guys that weren't the hardcore Nazis, but just German, um, naval and infantry and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Were, and even the Luftwaffe were portrayed as being kind of not as extreme as the, uh, the, uh, sort of, what would, I guess you'd call evil like Nazis. Like the SS or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in this one, yeah. we don't see the Germans, so they're just the enemy. Yeah, I mean, they wind up being a, a, a sort of a faceless, but not voiceless. There is the sort of um, the heckling voice of uh, one of the guys on one of the submarines, like, you know, uh, speaking in uh, kind of a, a heavily German-accented English, um, saying, you know, the, the gray wolf will uh, yeah. hunt down and destroy the gray hound as it tries to run away and escape. and <laughs> And that stuff was, so there's sort of a, a psy, psyops, like kind of psychological warfare yeah. kind of thing going on. Um, but yeah, I think that it works in that, you know, it's a, there are submarines. And so the submarine in and of itself 
as a as a naval warfare uh, engagement um, for these ships crossing is a mysterious and sort of unseen, largely unseen enemy. And so I think in that context within the larger narrative, it really works well to not show them. I was thinking too with um, Playtone being involved as you were talking about at the at the beginning there, Mike, um, you know, Playtone, I believe, and Tom Hanks uh, was really deeply involved in uh, the Band of Brothers yeah. uh, miniseries mm-hmm. on HBO, both the the European theater and then the second series, which um, was, I guess, in the Pacific. And so it, it felt to me like this movie felt like a really strong kind of uh, like a naval companion piece to Band of Brothers. It feels like there's so much... Um, connective tissue, even right down to some of the actors, I think, are the the guy who is the XO, right? Is uh, mm-hmm. Wahlberg, <laughs> and I think no, he's it's not in a Wahlberg. The brothers, he's not a Wahlberg. Oh, but uh, he's whatever, in whoever but that he's, guy was. But he's in a lot of he's in a lot of he's he he's a quote Irish, you know he he plays in a lot of Irish uh, films. Stephen Graham is his name. Oh, okay. Uh, actually, he's okay. English. Yeah. Sorry. He's, uh, he was in This yeah, Is English. England, Snatch, yep. Tinker Tailor, you know. Um, he was, he was what's his but it, name? But it felt like it was straight yeah. out of that universe, the Band yeah. of Brothers universe. I yeah, mean, for it, sure. It has so much of the same visual style, and the score is really similar. Um, so it, it just feels like it's right in that wheelhouse. And to tell yet another aspect of, you know, the World War II story, um, one that we really haven't seen of, you know, these kind of... Uh, dangerous crossings of huge convoys of supply ships and yeah because the last um, personnel and whatnot usually it's like midway right um that they go after yeah. right yeah and also the other interesting thing of course is that tom hanks was in um uh steven spielberg's d-day uh remarkable saving, saving private, private ryan, ryan which was the sort of gritty thing I think you mean or you were referring to earlier in terms of cinematography. Certainly it had this kind of like, especially yeah. the landing, uh, really visceral kind of aspect to it. Um, much bigger budget film, of course, than this. But, um, yeah, I think I think for me one of the interesting things about this is I hadn't really picked up on your point about it being a Band of Brothers companion. I did love that series to death. It, it felt sort of like a slightly smaller film uh, because it is just, I think, a, a smaller film. But it felt like a good film in in what it was trying to do and it sort of succeeded in what it was trying to do and I think we'll get onto the visual effects in a second but it like wasn't let down by its visual effects it wasn't in need of a Not mega budget but that whole thing about the um what could just add a personal note that whole thing about the supply uh convoys my wife's father was uh doing the Russian convoys where you nice Americans were giving gold to the Russians to get armaments to help the allies and um and so he did get uh, uh, twice hit and uh, ended up being stranded in Russia uh, and, you know, obviously uh, hiding out and stuff mm. and had an incredibly hard time of it because the Russian convoys were just as harsh, uh, if not right. harsher, than the uh, Atlantic convoys. And you saw there in this film when they had the cold and you had the ice and stuff mm-hmm. on the windows, mm-hmm. you can imagine on the Russian convoys they were yeah. chipping an inch of ice off the decks. And so I guess I was watching it with that. Uh, thought my father was also in the navy, and um, and I, he smoked during the war. I once said to him, you know, like oh, you're an idiot for smoking, and he said, and, and I was very close to my father, but he said, look, to tell you the honest truth, when there are bits of shrapnel flying at you, and you get down and hide behind a 
like a, you know, on the bridge, hide behind uh, the cover, knowing full well that it's going to go through the metalwork like it's paper, so it makes no difference. Mm-hmm. Smoking was the least of our problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and I think that there's a little bit of that sort of missing in the, the sense that like even on the bridge, you know, you'd see them duck and you'd sort of get the sense that if they were like with a sniper rifle, right, if you, if you could see them through the window, they were, you know, a possible target. But if you got down, you'd be safe. But they weren't safe at all, right? Like a, right. the sort of damage would just completely wipe out the um, – the bridge or any other part of where you were so easily that um, it was terrifying. So yeah, I think I think that, that that it did a pretty good job without being sensationalist and without being a documentary of sort of getting that impression of how well, unnerving it would be to be hunted by a wolf pack. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I thought they did a really good job without it feeling like exposition to explain to the audience the difference between radar, sonar, you know, how the mm. decoy works you know, showing it and then explaining it, you know what I mean? So like, you don't know that they're not hitting the, you know, spoiler alert, you don't know when they push the the Alka-Seltzer box out the, you know, the pipe out the side that that's a decoy, you know, unless, I mean, some people will, right? Because they know about that, but I didn't know what that was. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's a rogue torpedo or something. But when they went to throw all the charges and, you know, what have you, and then the guy goes, oh, by the way, we just like, blew a whole bunch of stuff for no reason, you know. Wasn't that extraordinary, that idea that they just didn't have, I mean, it was obviously true, they didn't have an unlimited supply of right. uh, depth charges yeah. and they had them stored yeah. in the crew quarters. Can you imagine how dangerous that was? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was just really interesting, those sort of little details that were put through. The, so. all the, you know, using the, you know, because you have this big expanse that, you know, especially like I'm, I'm not, I think I'm fairly knowledgeable on World War II, certainly not on the maritime stuff. And, you know, to, to have the, the flares go up and, you know, slowly learn the protocol of the language that they use on the deck. So when mm. someone says something that me as a viewer, I can, or I as a viewer, I can say, oh, I know what's going to happen. You know, halfway through the movie, I'm starting to get familiar with the language and I get that, oh, they're, they're veering, they're this, they're that, they're doing whatever. Oh, that flare means something, you know, because so, so the viewer starts to be educated enough to feel the tension without it having to be communicated, you know, uh, through dialogue constantly. Like it, it, it was, you know, it was really well paced, actually. Matt, there's one other thing I was wondering if I get your opinion on. I th- appreciated that while we had the uh, the sort of short bit, at, or it was like a bit of a flashback two months earlier, I think it was with, um, I think it was Evelyn, the uh, yeah Elizabeth the, the heart throb. Yeah, mm-hmm. what I liked was that we didn't spend 20 minutes before we got on the boat. Like we know that it's going to be about running the blockade. So in the film, which I don't think is even in this caliber remotely, the film Pearl Harbor. We had a huge section where um, they went to England and fought in the plains and finally they came back for Pearl Harbor. But in a film that was called Pearl Harbor, you knew it was going to be about <laughs> what happened at Pearl Harbor. So it was like for the first half an hour or an hour of the film, I'm like, okay, I understand this, but this isn't the film I came to see. <laughs> you just right. doing all this stuff in England and I'm like, what? <laughs> and so in this film, you know, it's only 90 minutes, but you could have added another 25 minutes before they got on the boat and I don't think it would have made it a better film. I th- yeah, I think I'd agree. I think it's nice the the way they did it. I think it works really well. It it made me think um, as you were describing it. It's it's kind of, it fulfills the objective within the context of the script of 
giving us another element of the Hanks character that we can sort of uh, grasp uh, an understanding that he has a, a life, he has a, you know, a, 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 a wife or a girlfriend or whatever, um, who he's uh, hoping to get back to at some point uh, beyond his sort of, the, the sort of good shepherd quality of him that we also see again at the end. And we sort of flash back again to her at the end. And it sort of functions in the way that I guess it's a little bit of a cliche, but I think it works in the context of this type of story. It functions sort of like the photograph of, uh, you know, the the girlfriend on the, um, you know, fighter pilot's, uh, yeah. you know, instrument panel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where we sort of see, it sort of works in that context, but it's, it's added as a scene, right? Yeah. And, and then there's a flashback at the end. And I think that that really works well. I, I personally could have done without it myself. Um, cause I mean that, if anything, that was pure exposition. Oh, your first, you know, your first crossing, you know, your first command of a ship and a this, and, oh, I wish I could marry you here. Like it was a little bit of a, but at least it wasn't holding. too long. No, it didn't you know, last too long. Wasn't. No, it was, yeah. it was, it was just enough handholding to be like, can we get on the boat already? You know, but, <laughs> but I mean, that's a minor thing to your point mike like if they I just had think done it makes if they had done 25 minutes of the first act of that shit you yeah know, you'd be like turn it off you know agreed yeah, yeah. i point, think it just gives us another it just gives us another um it, it's short and it's sweet and it just gives us one other little tangential yeah. piece that we can hold on to and i think in that respect i think it's it's useful to the in, larger in fact uh, construct in fact i would say this is, this is my <laughs> note for tom hanks is in fact, I would say that much the way that Joe Carnahan used the flashbacks to the wife in the gray, uh, oddly, the gray, not the greyhound, uh, with Liam Neeson's wife, I think you maybe could have done that here to not have it up front, but have it come somewhere at some dramatic point to go underscore, you know, at, use it as a flashback instead of a, just a linear plot piece. Yeah, maybe where did where did the slippers come from? Yeah, and then it's kind of revealed. Yeah, yeah, something like mm. that. But anyway, that's minutia. You know, it didn't, it didn't hurt but, the movie, but but it's nice not to have a two and a half hour movie where you felt oh, like God, thank you, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Because like, what's wrong with a ninety minute movie? You know, like I, there used to be nothing wrong with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know that. And more it's an action packed ninety minutes. Too, oh yeah, I think like I I yeah. definitely feel like. You know, I mean, I watched it for free at home, but I feel like if I got my money's worth for sure. If I'd seen that in the theater, I would have been like, "Wow, that was intense." You know? Yeah. Well, we'll get we'll get to that in a maybe we'll get to it now. Do you think this film would have worked in the cinema under normal circumstances? Forget if COVID hadn't ever happened. Do you think it would have been I a do. success at the box office? Oh yeah, I mean, I think Tom Hanks, like, you know, you could see the ad campaign for it. I mean, there's some. I think there's some amazing visual effects in this movie. The the um, the sort of broadside uh, shooting battles that mm-hmm. happen are so, they're so visually exciting. And they do a couple things to sort of orient you um, visually too. And you could just, you could see how they could cut trailers for it. Mm-hmm. The sound design is, is totally great. Like, I mean, if I'd see, I mean, I saw the trailer for it thinking it was going to be a theatrical release before it became an Apple uh, release. And I was, I was excited. I was like, well, okay, like 
I don't know if my wife will want to go see this one, but like, I bet my son will, like, we'll go check this out. You know, like, I mean, it definitely was a movie that I was going to go see. Yeah, I think we are very much in the demographic of <laughs> that it wouldn't appeal to. <laughs> yeah, <definitely. laughs> um, but uh, yeah, okay, well, let's discuss the visual effects. So uh, we don't have a lot of background information on the visual effects. It, they were primarily done by uh, Dean Egg. And uh, Matt, I think you found who you thought were the visual effects supervisors uh, based on the IMDb profile. Is that right? Uh, well, I was actually just looking at the DNEG website. Okay. <laughs> and the DNEG website credits, they list uh, Sebastian Overheight and uh, Pete Bebb as the DNEG VFX supervisors. And I think we also, oh, yeah. And I think we did find a couple other names. Is that true? Yeah. Well, yeah, search? on the IMDb Pro, it lists uh, Nathan McGuinness. And I think he's a particular interest because uh, Nathan worked uh, back in the day on um, uh, uh, thing I went commander. What's it called? Uh, master and commander. Yeah, that's it. Great. Um, thank you. And, uh, that was at asylum and, uh, then he went to DNEG. I don't think he's still at DNEG, but he's listed as a supervisor on this. So perhaps he was working, uh, in that capacity. We'll try and find out and put it in the show notes if we can. Um, but yeah, definitely DNEG was providing a lot of the, uh, visual effects. I think there was also some done by, a uh, couple of other companies. I'm I'm thinking at this point, uh, but again, we'll check. I think on we that. saw but hydraulics in there, right? Hydraulics being the one that, yeah, I was about to, uh, and and that would make sense, right? Like, there's hardly a film these days that is done entirely by one visual effects house. But a film of this size, without like you know a mega mega budget, is uh, based out of DNEG would make complete sense. So the the film is not enormously long which of course translates into the visual effects it's also had some actual shooting on real um uh, ships because they uh they managed to get access to filming on some uh canadian ships i believe that were because uh, the actual uss greyhound is a fictitious name it's not a an actual um but i believe the Fletcher class destroyer that it was kind of based on. Um, they managed to shoot, and they also managed to, of course, produce digital versions of the ships, right. um, which we see in the film. The thing that I was going to, and getting back to uh, Captain and Commander for whatever it's called, um, com- Master, what is that film? Master, 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 Master Commander, Commander. Thank you. I'm I actually really like that film. Yeah. I, I managed to visit Asylum when they were actually making it, and Nathan ran through the visual effects shots for that. When he was doing it back then, which is you know, quite a while ago, he, you know, he produced a digital ship right beside a real, um, uh, obviously it was a sailing ship, and they were trying to sort of get it so that you couldn't pick the difference between the two. But the focus there was obviously on the ship. And the big difference I was going to highlight between that and here is just how significant in this film the water is. Yeah. Because yeah. it's one thing to place a ship on the water. It's another thing to make the water look good. And time and time again in visual effects up until the modern age of really good fluid sims, they just always looked so fake. You just couldn't scale them. You couldn't shoot miniatures mm-hmm. properly. You couldn't do anything. And even if you tried putting a ship into um, waves and stuff, it didn't work. And then we got the digital era and we had a bunch of great films um, that had waves, but the scale was wrong. It just They didn't look very large they didn't look very dramatic um or if they did they looked absurdly large and absurdly dramatic and i felt the fluid sims here so worked for giving a sense of the the correct scale i was just curious on what you guys thought 
Oh yeah, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, I think uh, you know the uh, master and commander. Uh, by the way, just uh, is I think one of the greatest uh, war movies of all time. I love that movie. It's so good. That's Peter Weir, um, yep. and the work in that movie is totally epic, um, and it shares a lot of. Uh, uh, Staging. There's a lot of staging in the sort of broadside attacks in that film that are reminiscent of the ones in this movie too. I thought, um, in terms of the shot design and stuff. But yeah, the water uh, in this film is is a character unto itself, and it's undulating and changing dynamics. Um, the way the ships move through the water, the way the bow of the ship, um, you know, will crest uh, over a wave and sort of be. Um, sub- partially submerged for a moment and then come back up. And as they're going hard rudder to one uh, side or another, um, the the um, what, listing, you know, as they're sort of turning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, and then even like the um, the depth charges on the water, the uh, the explosions on yeah. the water, some of the stuff under the water. Yeah, um, stellar. It's, it is an amazingly... Uh, beautiful uh, achievement and i think scale wise there's really not a shot in the show i i watched some of the sequences again today after having watched it uh i guess the night it came out um just in preparation for this and i just feel like the the effects are so strong and the water sim stuff is so good like it, it's um it's just a an absolute if it didn't work the movie wouldn't work yeah and I think the yep. fact that it works so well and that the scale is portrayed so well, it heightens the drama. I mean, it is it is the movie. It's what you're yeah. there to see for sure. Yeah. I mean, the 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 I mean, I think they do it maybe three times. They do, you know, they stand on the bridge and and sort of, you know, make guesses, you know, Hanks will yell out, you know hard right 1.2 or, you know, whatever he's saying. Right. And, or full, you know, full rudder, you know, pick it up, slow it down, whatever. And, you know, A, I think it's fascinating that, that there are, you know, ship, you know, captains of ships and commanders that can do that by eye and just look at the thing and go, okay, and do this. You know what I mean? That's, that's just an incredible skill anyway. But, I thought they did that to great effect when they had the two torpedoes coming from two different sides and he was timing, mm-hmm. you know, which way to list and he's doing the hard list and the left list and whatever to, to sort of try and just, you know, and they, they do the shot where they're like on him and they sort of peer over the side of the, over the ship with a little bit of a dolly move and you can just follow the thing going down, you know, they just watch it <laughs> go along the ship and then it bounces off the, you know, the hull, all of that stuff. You know, again, you're staring at fake water for, you know, 70% yeah. of those scenes. There's no, sh- you're not looking at Hanks or the ship or the crew. You're literally looking at water and looking at a torpedo tracing through the water. And to assume where it's come from, like all those things, all those assumptions and obviously the juxtaposition of the edits and whatever, it all was seamless. I didn't, I was, um, I was in fact, looking i was waiting for like a janky shot to be honest yeah not that i expected it but you know you just there's always a shot or two that just you go oh that was weird and just i didn't really i i didn't really have that moment i think the only moments if i really wanted to be super nitpicky was the oil slicks 
when they would mm. hit, you know, when they'd use the oil slick as an as a determinant if they sank sunk a, a ship if they didn't see, you know, debris or whatever. Those looked a little weird, but I mean, I've never seen an oil slick from a blown up submarine in the cold North Atlantic, <laughs> so I really couldn't say how accurate it is. But um, and again, I'm being super nit. Like if I if I wanted to look for something, uh, that would be the only thing I would point to. But it still looked like an oil slick. You know what I mean? I'm just being. Uh, yeah, whatever. I think you you make a great point though, because I do think that the visual shot design of of such a huge number of visual effect shots, I think that's like that's a big point. I mean, I think like you say, like seventy percent of the movie are visual effect shots or some kind of like there's visual effects in almost everything we're looking at, and those huge uh, shots of sort of the the map of sort of what we're looking at, yeah, the convoy, where we are, yeah. where's, yeah, seeing the convoy, seeing the, the torpedo tracks, like you're saying, that stuff is so important to understanding the peril and the, the drama of what's going on. And the way those shots are designed and executed is so strong that, you know, when they say like, you know, plot the position of that from that torpedo plot back to where they think it was fired from to try to locate where that sub currently is or where it's moving to like and then they they constantly were doing this thing that i thought was so smart where the camera would go way up high and we'd be in a kind of yep. you know sort of god's eye view mm -hmm. of the whole battle scene and it was a way to reorient the audience and give us a sense of the overall ge geography of sort of what's happening and as these ships are sort of you know, circling and moving around and turning left and right and what have you. And I think that, um, you know, without that kind of complex visual planning, it would have been hard to tell what was going on. But all of those things work really well together to tell a cohesive uh, and really tight story. The other thing that's worth interestingly noting is the uh, underwater shots of the subs. So while we don't go in the subs and spend any time um, there's a great tradition in cinema of terrific sub-movies like uh, Dust Boat mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. Hunt for Red October. And things like Hunt for Red October, all of the underwater sub-work was dry for wet with a smoke-filled room with miniatures. Obviously here we've gone for digital underwater, but there's a lot of pivotal shots of the screws of um, either the submarine or of the uh, ship that Hanks is on and, and the turning and the rudder and stuff. And those turbulence in the underwater thing you can't really get in a in a uh, a dry for wet the way you can with digital because you get these amazing kind of uh well vortexy type movements with the uh, air bubbles and stuff and i thought that was really strong it was because yeah. underwater stuff denies you the ability just to do a, a normal kind of surface based um uh water sim solution you really have to be using everything in the book because you've got such limited visibility underwater. Theoretically, you don't see very far at all. Yeah. And so yeah. in the North Atlantic, you wouldn't see uh, more than, what, 20 feet maybe? So you have to sell a shot that is actually kind of fake, like especially at night, you're not going to see anything. Um, but I never looked at them and went, oh, hang on, that's so fake. Like it's where's yeah. the light coming from for that? <laughs> well, and with um, the, the shots of the screws you're talking about too, they also did, along with the bubbles and the animation, there is some like refracted distortion too, like of turbulating mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, water, which uh, I think also really helps accentuate it and it gives it a heightened sense of realism and something you also couldn't do in the dry for wet environment. Yeah, I mean... yeah. The the shots where when you first see the submarines and they 
they kind of do their jaws fin, you know, up and show all their, you know, the the gray wolf and the, you know, Nazi skull with the, you know, all their insignias on the side of the subs to sort of let you know both both visually, oh, those are the bad guys, but they also look kind of cool um, and and how many of them there are, right? Uh, or at least that you're showing you and that 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 cool little like um, squeaky metal sound that happened every time they they came around. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, okay. You know, it's like the barrels and jaws. You know what I mean? Like, or the theme, like, like something's going to happen. We get this uncomfortable sound and we're about to get into a battle. We know that it's a submarine. You know, it's, it's obviously we all agree, you know, audio sound design and, and music is, is, mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, 70% of the experience. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the decals weren't as big as that. They were obviously something that you wouldn't want to, have that would catch the light that yeah. would tell <laughs> but but it helped the audience a lot to yeah. know that it wasn't just a sub it was many subs and there were different yeah. subs each time kind of thing yeah i i agree with that i mean and the spray uh, I th you know the spray yep. off of it as they came up at no point we were like oh that's weird it just emerged from the water like no it literally like you you know obviously i'm dumbing it down to to like the worst possible version of an effect you know, that you could do, which obviously wasn't done in the movie, but, you know, like it broke the water properly. The surface tension, you know, fell off the, you know, off the side. And anytime I see a sub that does that, all I can think of is Indiana Jones, you know, uh, when he's on top of the thing, waving his hat and the, you know, water's going by and whatever, you know, like it's, um, you know, it's a known thing, you know, I think, you know, at least the 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 dad movie war movie guys know what a submarine looks like going through the a real submarine. You know, so there's some visual language there that you have to not you know knock out of the park, which I think they did. Yeah, I think I think also it was a good sort of scale to realize that you're in an era like today. Obviously, you know things would be computer controlled so that you would not send it off and if it was on a straight run it would just go right past the thing it was trying to aim at yeah um and so similarly you could be quite close in the uh in the u-boat sense behind the and out of the range of the uh protecting part of the convoy and you know sort of see uh this sort of imminent you don't get that in modern warfare right you know if you're that close to anyone you'd be gone um so there was that sort of old tech world that I really enjoyed, like that you would mm -hmm. see, you know, people would literally go and glance between people. Now I know it's a bit unrealistic that, um, that they would do that going under the gun thing. Cause you know what, uh, I, I believe it worked in the story. I believe also that in reality, you just have to throw the rudder hard over and you tip the, the, uh, destroyer over enough that the guns can actually blast the hell out of a sub. Um, and that that's been the case since uh, since years gone by. But anyway, it worked in the story. This idea you could just go that close, and it's very good to be able to eyeball the enemy, even if you're not eyeballing the individuals. Just the ship being so close to the sub was super dramatic. But, but even um, the concept, yeah, no, was, even the concept though of like because we're all to your point used to targeted aiming and all sorts of aiming assists and whatever in modern, you know, uh, you know, even Star Wars, you know thing, you know, X-Wing 
display lasers in. Dee, 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 dee. Okay, well, it's beeping. I'll hit the button. I'm sure the rocket yeah. will get there. Um, in this case, you know, when the U-boat surfaces and they're just shooting and blasting and they're like <laughs> missing it like 80% yeah. of the time and you're like, you know, half of you goes, why are they missing it? And you're like, oh, because they're literally on a boat that's going up and down and left and, and down, right. yeah. yeah. And we're just... And they're winding with handles yeah. <laughs> to, to focus. Yeah, to, yeah they have to like... Focus their uh, attention on what they're going to Yeah, they hit. have yeah. like, uh, you know, tripod wheels, you know, to yeah. uh, to get a get a. I think there's such out. a... There's such a fun thing about a movie like this too, I think for visual effects people and maybe for film people in general, uh, cinema, uh, like filmmakers, because there's such a kind of... Um, uh, like you're thinking about angles and like kind of trying to figure out what's where and like sort of this kind of uh, mapping of uh, and problem solving. It feels like it's a real natural. Um, mm -hmm. You were talking about the um, in terms of visual effects, Jason, you mentioned the spray and, and yeah. some of the water effects and stuff. And I think, you know, I, I look at all that and I think about like the, you know, the aeration of water like white caps, the breaking of the surface tension of the surface of the water, the mm -hmm. splash, and then the splash of the splash, and yeah. how those things like uh, all have to work in conjunction with each other in order to get the appropriate scale. And another thing that I, I noticed in watching some of these sequences again today that I think is really, really strong, um, and we should talk about effects-wise, is um, there's a lot of great compositing in this show and there's some great compositing tricks too that are you know really commonplace, but just like the sort of water uh, splash on the lens, you know, and mm -hmm. kind of doing some of this stuff that's yeah. that's up close. That I think also it probably hides maybe uh, little bits and pieces that maybe didn't quite look as good, but it also adds a kind of sense of depth and scale as well. And I thought there was a lot of great stuff where you'd see some splash or some spray and it would hit the, you know, the, the lens quote yeah. unquote, right. It's, it's just a comp gag, um, in some of those shots and it works really well and was really, really nicely done in the way that the, the light at night and stuff would interact on the droplets on the, on the, on the screen. Yeah, I think I think before we move off, we just have to acknowledge that just solving the Navier-Stokes equations for the fluids is just such a big deal, <laughs> and it's done oh, yeah. so effectively. And then you get this second level of artistry that you're pointing to in terms of the compositing. And and I, can I just tell a funny story against myself? Like you were saying, the comp stuff, right? There was one shot where Hanks was lit very differently than the background. It was like a red and different. And I was mm -hmm. like, wow, what a bad comp. And then I realized that he was standing in a different pool of light and he then moves in the shot to the right pool of light. And I was like, oh, okay, that was fair enough. That was how it <laughs> yeah. <would> actually be. <laughs> but it was like try, me, Seymour, trying to be a smart ass. Like, oh, that's not the right, that's not the right contact lighting. Oh, wait, okay, it is. Yeah, yeah, all right, okay, fair enough. Well, because yeah. think yeah. about how many shots they have of him going out, like on yeah. the, on the yeah. deck to get a visual. Oh, that was one of those shots, all of yeah. That, yeah, all of that, like I would imagine not, I would think most of those skies, if not all of those skies, are sky replacements and um, a lot of that ocean in the distance, if, certainly if there's ships in the distance, all that stuff is uh, digital. You know, Even if they were out on a real ship, I can't and, imagine that they were yeah. getting and also, that can I just in say, camera. It has to be digital. I don't want to interrupt you before, but your point about the staging was so evident, I think, in that uh, triangulation torpedo attack where the audience has to understand what the ship is doing to avoid two torpedoes that are coming in mm -hmm. on, you know, converging lines. And it was never 
confusing to me in the slightest, even though yeah. – uh, you were having to sort of understand it needs to miss this one, then miss that one, and turn to miss that. Um, and yeah, and I think they judicious sell that, use of top shots. But they also sell that by by Hanks makes the first decision to your staging and structure point. He makes the first decision before you even realize there's a second torpedo, right? Because there's one. They go to Bing, and then they go second one, right? Because they don't go off at the same time. So. And then when he banks, you, they cut to his face and he does a really good job of, of acting, thinking. You know what I mean? And he's, right. and he's, you see in his face and at least in the way the shots are constructed, constructed and juxtaposed that he's timing. Like they're, ne- they never say, he never says like, hold on. He's looking at a pocket watch or some bullshit device to like figure out how he's going to time it. He's literally just watching it. And you can see in his eyes that he's going three, two, uh, he's like ballparking it. And he goes, okay, now, you know what I mean? And he's taking into account that he has to communicate to somebody who still has to do something before it gets done. Right. Cause it doesn't happen. He's not pushing a button and something's happening. Mm-hmm. He's talking to a guy who's yelling to a guy who's turning a wheel, who's doing a thing. So it's like, you know, it's, it, I thought, to your point, Mike, that that it was as much as the visual effects worked in that scenario, the staging and the blocking of the scene yeah. and the performances drove the visual, you know, helped the visual effects be successful. Um, well, yeah, and think about think about how they heighten within the context of both the script, the visual shot design, and uh, the the overall plot narrative. They heighten the tension. And ratchet it up so much further when the battle sort of gets really crazy, and they're they're tracking the submarine, they're tracking torpedoes, and then all of a sudden they're about to have a collision with another ship oh, yeah. in the convoy, <laughs> and then and then they're both trying to shoot, and there's a friendly fire incident. They're both trying to shoot at a submarine, and they're sort of shooting across each other and waiting for one of the ships to move out of the way to get. Oh yeah, he keeps saying, "Wait, wait, yeah, get out of the way, yeah." So they, you know, they heighten the, director the tension on this, and make it so much more hectic, you know. The director on this is an ex-cinematographer, but he hasn't really directed much else, right? Uh, what was his biggest movie? I'd never heard of him before. Yeah, it's Aaron Schneider, I think it is. And anyway, he is just like, I don't think he's actually directed a major feature. He's done second unit and stuff, but he's... What's his... For a, what has he shot? Like what, any big... Uh, well, he's... Uh, yeah, not not a lot of stuff that you would know. I'm looking at his CV. Hey, Deep now. Rising. I have a credit on Deep Rising. Mm. I worked on well, that there you go. a long time ago. LL Cool J. <laughs> okay. But he wasn't yeah. actually directing that. He was just Yeah, no, but I mean shooting. Camera and yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. What what Wow, I mean, good for him cuz he killed it. I mean, it's great. Yeah, I'm just trying to look at his He's done like, you know, music videos like uh Eminem and stuff. I'm just trying to find something that uh but yeah like and tv he shot a bunch of tv um as a cinematographer uh you know supernatural to i don't know you know things like the agency and right stuff that you may not know but um yeah um i just think his 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 visual language and that that was then being picked up by the vision of supervisors and continued through all the work of the uh staging that Matt's been talking about is is really first rate in a film that can be very dull if you don't know what's going on. Um, 
so just before we finish this bit up, anything like final favorite shot or or not favorite shot, perhaps? Uh, because I want to go on to your uh, other favorite dad movies of all times and my own <laughs> personal gripe. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't have a, I think I've already sort of, you know, uh, said my, my, if I were to try to find a, a, a gripe, it would be the oil slick again, but I'm completely uninformed on oil slicks in general. So that's maybe more my problem. But um, I think that my biggest problem is with the delivery methods. And this goes to our other concept of theater or home. Cause I wanted to watch this. I was like, Oh, it's TV, Apple TV. And I have a, you know, a TCL like Roku TV. It has, it's 4k Dolby vision, all that shit. <clears throat> and it has a, uh, um, it has an Apple TV app. So I was like, Oh, I'll just, you know, Oh, there it is. Apple TV. I started watching it and I'm like, this doesn't look right. And I was like, why is this stretched? I was like, Oh, maybe this is supposed to be anamorphic, but there's no, there's no setting to change it, right, in, in the Apple TV app. And there's no – the TV has kicked into Dolby mode, so there's no way to change anything there either. So I was like, okay, let me turn on my Apple TV. I put it on the Apple TV, uh, and then I go, oh, it's Dolby Vision. Okay, boom, turn it on. I cannot stand the delivery methodology that Apple specifically does with their apps – where Dolby Vision is 60 hertz and it drives me bananas. I watched the first five minutes of this movie and I was like, I can't, this movie looks like shit. I can't watch this movie. Like, man, these visual effects, like the boats look like toys and like the water is so weird. And I was like, oh, hmm. shit, I think it's Dolby Vision. So like I I went back, I went, I reset the Apple TV to... Uh, original settings, which is like 4K uh, SDR and and it's all weird and warm and like it doesn't look anything, whatever. And then I was just like, great. And I turned it on and I did, turned off match frame rate. I turned off all that shit and I watched it at 24 frames, regular SDR, 4K, and it looked fantastic. And And the Apple TV, the device itself was able, you know, squashed it properly. Um, so it was, you know, letterboxed and what have you, but I just wish I could watch Dolby vision, not in 60 Hertz. I don't know if that's a thing. I don't know enough about Dolby, Dolby okay. vision to, to, uh, <laughs> to know if that's valid, but it's, it, it just doesn't look good. And, uh, and what about you, Matt? I mean, I watched it on an Apple TV, like a, just in 2K on my, I don't have a 4K HDR TV. I have a 2K, like a 50 inch TV or whatever. And I, it looked awesome. I mean, I don't, I, I'm just so excited. I, I, I understand like people's um, really deep love of, of the cinema and going to the cinema. I love going to the movies too, but I am so glad that, um, things like this are getting released right yeah. now on streaming services mm -hmm. and that there's the opportunity to continue to have the kind of excitement around a new release. You know, it's sometimes maybe you have to scramble to try to get the right service to see the thing you want to see. But like, you know, I watched Hamilton on the 4th of July, which was awesome. Absolutely. Um, same. Yeah. And, uh, and to be able to watch this movie and, 
you know, the Charlie's Theron movie that came out on Netflix. Oh yeah, I got to watch check that. Out yeah. Maybe in the next week or something. And I'm just so thrilled that like during this kind of really crazy time uh, in the world that we have the opportunity to watch these really great films and maybe it's not the way that we all want to see them. It might not be the way the studios want to release them. The directors maybe don't want to release them this way. But, I, you know, I, it doesn't, in the in the bigger scheme of things for me, I don't know that it takes away from my pleasure and enjoyment of the experience of the movie. I think, Agreed. you know, I can create the conditions in my house. I'm fortunate enough, I guess, to be able to create the conditions in my house where I can see the movie and really create a really rich cinema-like experience. So um, for me, it's it hasn't really been, if anything, it's I, I kind of like it. <laughs> well, remember <laughs> also- the odd man out. I kind of dig seeing movies that way. Well, remember- I'm there's looking forward also, to watching Tenet on my iPhone. Yeah, on my Apple Watch, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the other thing is remember that of a viewing audience of a feature film like this, if it were to be under normal circumstances and get a theatrical is that there's already, let's just say there's a hundred percent of people that are going to see it. There's already a specific number of people that will never go see it in the theater be, for whatever reason, preference, timing, you know, availability funds or what have you, who would watch it at home anyway. So it's not like you're losing your entire audience to the home experience. It's a, it's a, fraction or percentage how large that percentage is i'm not entirely sure but it's not the it's not a hundred percent well yeah right? so this is obviously what i was keen to discuss the thing is though if you don't have tom hanks and it's not a topic that people are know either because it's a remake or in this case because they just know the the uh, context it's part of the being at the cinema thing is that you throw a huge media budget around it and people get to kind of know the film and then it becomes when it hits, you know, for a wider audience, people kind of know it and they see it. I mean, one of the problems with going, avoiding the cinemas and stuff is you can have a sort of it's lost in obscurity. It's not that it wasn't good. It just wasn't found by an audience. I mean, this film yeah. was found by an audience, not least of which because Tom Hanks was in it, um, which, you know, right away you're thinking, well, Tom Hanks can do anything he wants, so he's probably picking a good thing to do and it looks kind of good from the trailer, so I'm in. Um there are a lot of things served by it being at a cinema. Yeah. And uh, having said that, of course, there's like enormously good TV out there um, that never goes to a cinema. Uh, I guess maybe I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding that point a little bit because I kind of feel like there's an enormous amount of incredible discovery that can happen um, with really amazing films on various streaming platforms like that wouldn't get the big uh, budget um, press release, or even maybe wouldn't get a big theatrical release. They would get, you know, what we used to think of as sort of an art house release. Yeah. And there's not too many art house cinemas anymore, at least not here uh, where I live. And and so I wonder if, if maybe there's opportunities for more indie and kind of different yeah. voices to get an audience through discovery and in streaming. Where okay, they you're absolutely... Have. You're absolutely right. I guess my point is that if you take away COVID for a second, uh, mm -hmm. then if a film like this was just turning up on Apple TV and hadn't been in the cinemas, I'd assume that there was something wrong with it. Yes, of course. And, uh, okay. and I wouldn't have seen yeah, it. I see what you mean. Yeah. That, Whereas, that's a pattern. That's a social patterning thing though, right? Yes. Yes. We're now in an era where, uh, yes, like for example, Hamilton, 
I was desperate to see, thought it was going to be brilliant. It was brilliant. And I knew it was going to be pretty brilliant anyway because the stage show was just so well. And I didn't expect it to be um, carrying most of the weight on the cinematography. I expect most of the weight to be carried by the the tremendous performances and the, the music and everything else. In this film, obviously, um, I was interested in it and it stood out because it was Hanks. But if it hadn't been for... COVID, I would have had my radar up as to, yeah. do you reckon this will be any good or not? Um, now, that's different to a, what you're describing as an art house film where I very much don't expect to see that at the cinema because I don't expect it to get a good run and I'm delighted when I find those gems and and go digging for them. But now we are in a COVID world and we're never yeah. going to go back to a pre-COVID world. So so does that change or does it go back have we well, have we you know, i guess moved the dial permanently or is it just temporarily deflected i mean my i'm a huge proponent of day and date which which is for people who don't know is the concept of putting out a movie on in the theater on a television streaming platform a laptop what have you digital streaming uh vod DVD, Blu-ray, like basically all distribution mediums at once for all intents and purposes. I'm simplifying it. Because mm-hmm. for the exact reason I said before about your percentage of viewers being of those varying distribution models, I want to, if I'm, you know, the three of us are theater guys, right? We're, we want to see, you know, a mo- uh, let's say, let's say Greyhound was coming out in a, uh, in, in the theater and it was day and date. But Mike is stuck at home. He's super busy. He can't get to the theater. I go to the theater and I see it. And I say to Mike, the very next day on opening weekend, I see it Friday night, <clears throat> opening weekend, uh, Saturday, I call Mike and I go, dude, you have to see Greyhound. And he's like, I know I really want to see it, but I can't get out of the house because I'm, you know, I have, a, you know, my 40th, uh, you know, um, a certificate or class or, you know, some sort of crazy thing I'm learning and I can't do it. I'm going to watch it tonight at home. Boom. They have your money, Matt. Oh yeah. I want to get to the theater, but I like to own my movies. Boom. I just bought it on Blu-ray. Like all of the purchasing medium and the power of the power of the marketing and the word of mouth and the excitement is all realized at the same time. And I believe that this will help us get there if five years from now, you know, everything is figured out and people can go to the movies. If we don't emerge from this in that scenario of a day and date kind of thing where it's just everywhere on opening weekend or within a week or some sort of much smaller window than the three month or thing, which means two marketing budgets all this extra stuff, it's just a waste by the distributors to rake in more money on and manipulate the take so they don't have to pay the yeah, filmmakers. I would think, I would think and, what you're what you're just what you're describing, I, I would think there's gotta that's gotta be in the long run, I would think a bigger money making proposition. You know who did it? <laughs> Mark Cuban did it with Soderbergh, I think on two projects, Bubble and something else. And he did that like, this is like 10 years ago, I think, or longer. Hmm. He, he had Magnolia, he had Landmark Theaters, and he had HDNet. And he 
you could literally walk out of the theater and buy the DVD in the theater on your way out, like exiting the gift shop hmm. from a museum yeah. or something. But but to get back anyway, to the fact that we are in a rant. post-COVID world. No, 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 but 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 we are now like this 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 is what we're living. So two things. Like firstly, I don't know when the last time you bought a Blu-ray or a DVD was, but I haven't bought one in no, like forever. No, I, I don't personally, but people so do. Yeah, apparently. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is, so this looked like it was going to be uh, a blip for three or four months, right? So I actually had tickets to the premiere of Mulan and it was going to be Sunday and it's like Wednesday and they go, oh, we're pulling the, the movie from the preview. And that film is now one of many uh, with like the Bond film and like a bunch of other mega budget films that are just sitting there kind of going, some point we want to get these in a cinema. Now, Greyhounds said, no, we're going to just go straight to Apple TV. But for a Mulan or a Bond film, how long do you just keep it on the shelf? Because uh, even if you open the cinemas, people have to be willing to go to the cinemas and yep. have to be able yeah. to sit in the cinemas in volume. Now, I've got cinemas open in my country now. And when we went to the cinema the other night for the first time, it was all, you know, properly, like we were not, we're not people that are ignoring the health issues. Like I'm not somebody that is, you know, disregarding. We're completely following protocol. But protocol in a city like Sydney that hasn't really got any outbreaks is that we had a third of the cinema uh, with seats and two-thirds had to be empty. Right. And in that context, they're not getting that many people in the cinemas. And even then, it probably wasn't at capacity because not necessarily everybody wants to go to a cinema right now. So if you're sitting on a major film like the next Bond film, how long do you just say we're just going to keep pushing those dates out, which they've done now I don't know how many times, and it was going to be July, then it was August, now I'm hearing November, now I'm hearing 2021 on some of these films. Um, and at what point do you just say, you know what, I'm going to uh, get this out because I need to? Because, like, the entire Marvel slate is just being pushed back, for example. Yeah, I thought when the uh, when the, when the the um, the the quarantine started sort of sweeping the globe and we were all kind of locking down for, you know, whatever it was, you know, six, eight, 10 weeks, um, at the outset and the bond movie got pushed. My initial thought was that's a big mistake. I thought the coolest, most like, you know, joyous thing they could do for everybody who's now going into this state of lockdown yep. would be to find the right service and broker the right deal to stream it, you know, live or well, not live, but to, to release it online and everybody on the planet would have watched that movie. More eyes would have been watching that movie than we'll ever go see it in a theater. And I thought it was a mistake, uh, personally to not do it. I think, I, I think to like, I mean, just look at the success of, uh, of Hamilton. I mean, we were just talking about Hamilton, how that was going to be, uh, I think yep. a theatrical release for like next July. I think yep. it was like, and they decided, you know, Hey, you know, let's do this, let's put it out. And it came out, uh, and it's just been eating up the, you know, the, all the reviews in the paper and everybody's been talking about it. I mean, I think it was a brilliant thing to release it the way they did when they did. Yeah. And so I think, I think there's opportunities, but it's sort of, it's, there's so many older business models and entrenched interests um, uh, that I think make it hard to make those kind of decisions. I mean, well, we've seen now Tenet has been yeah. pushed back and pushed yep. back and pushed back. And, 
you know, will there ever come a time where it won't get pushed further and further back? At what point does it start to get, like but you also said, it's, stale on the shelf? And it's, you know? But it's also a chicken and egg, isn't it? Because as I say, like you won't go to the cinema unless there's something worth seeing and you won't put something in the cinema unless you've got lots of audiences going to the cinema. Yeah. Like we yeah. haven't ever had to kickstart or jumpstart, I guess, um, this experience before. Well, also... It's a difficult problem. Also, sure. to your point, Mike... Let's just say they open all the theaters in the whole world and it's th- you, you can make 30% of the revenue per minute that you would normally because that means pretty much that's what yep. it is, right? So you have to show the movie, you have to leave the movie in the theater three times longer just to make the same money you would under the regular circumstances. So, you know, then you have, you know, I think at this point it comes down to also everyone's afraid to piss off the exhibitors. You know, the exhibitors are are a big um, portion of this. The studios are a big portion of this because there's some bean counter somewhere going, well, you know, ticket sales are typically this. And we normally, you know, and they're, they're trying to do all their matrices of, of, um, of cost, you know, benefit analysis. And then you have filmmakers like Nolan who are – I'm not, this is not a negative, but, you know, he wants people to see his, you know, large format movie in a theater. And so all those things are playing against each other. uh, And I think that it's going to be quite a while before, before we're going to get to any semblance of, of, you know, the, you know, I think, uh, of a normal well, cert- certainly here in the united states well definitely here which in the is united a huge, states which is the largest a huge market. slice of the market right? yeah 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 i mean china's a huge slice but you don't get as many american films being able to be played in china um and india again huge huge market but not necessarily for these films uh so yeah no it's a really 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 complicated problem yeah i don't i don't know that um like as time goes on this keeps changing this is the thing that's kind of weird as well uh, and I, I know that Matt and I have got interest in the universities that we're getting sort of a whole parallel thing happening with those where you've got mm-hmm. this thing where like with film and like with a bunch of other things in life at the moment, you say these things seem so important that someone should have a good answer to this problem. <laughs> and in in a normal circumstance, the good answer, if it isn't being delivered right now, would be, well, that's just incompetence. But what I find increasingly is the really good answer to the really important question can't be answered right now because no one just knows. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not like no one's being decisive or no one's giving it any thought. I, If you ask me, when should you release Tenant? I don't have a great answer to that question yeah, right course. now. Um, and, and then even if you said, well, could you release it in Australia? Because, you know, Australians uh, can go to the cinema and the Americans can't for a while. Or... Maybe we put it in the American cinemas to encourage people to go to the cinemas, but then what if there's an outbreak and, you know, I mean, it just becomes a nightmare. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think, though, that there, there are safe decisions that you can make based on available information. And I think one of the frustrations, at least from my perspective, certainly you mentioned the universities, one of the frustrations I feel is that decisions that I think you can make that seem reasonable and safe based on what is currently known are not being made. They're being postponed. And by postponing some of those decisions, you're creating scenarios where uh, you're you're delaying uh, the ability to be successful in certain ways. Like you're letting a lot of different things go stale and you're not 
creating plans to move forward to create, like just for example, like let's say you're going to have, maybe this is too off topic, but just like at a university, are classes going to be in person or are they going to be online? Well, if they're going to be online, we should say they're going to be online and prepare to create kick-ass online offerings. But if we're so going to delay with and you say on we're that. going to do them in yeah, person. No, no, but hang on. But, okay, but I'm with you. But then just use that as an example, right? Because uh, uh, you've brought it up. And then the president mm. says, if you don't have online classes and you're a foreign student, you need to leave the country. And so, you know, like what seemed like a, why don't you just make the decision and go online and do kick ass suddenly becomes, well, yeah, now we're all our foreign students that were here under visas to be at our universities have to leave the country. That's, that's a well, yeah, huge. Because we're, we're trapped in a situation where we're fighting a virus and also like a cacus. And also, you know? also a virus. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but I'm with you. Right. But my, my point is anyway, with all these things, with the cinemas, the same thing kind of applies, right? Like you've got these uh, moves to open up uh, and have audiences come back. And then at the same time, you've got, yeah skyrocketing in Florida. I think in Florida today, there was more new cases than any city's ever had in the United States ever. In the world, for, I think, actually. In one day. Yeah. And so it was like, well, that didn't seem like a good idea. Um, yeah, but, but Disney World still persuasion. opened. Well, exactly. In Florida. So and like, is that what, is that, anyway, what so, is that all about? Yeah. You know, and then is it going to have to close again? I know. So it's really hard. Anyway. Well, well I am going to, on Tuesday night, I'm going to a drive-in with my oh, family I did that. to see the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. So oh, there yeah. are options to go to uh, some we, form of cinema. We saw at the drive-in, because there are no new movies, we saw uh, Invictus, you know, which, oh, cool. uh, yeah. And what we did is we had a four-wheel drive, so we turned it back around, put the back seats down, because it's winter here, of course. Right. But it's an Australian winter, right? It's not like that cold. <laughs> and we had lots of uh, rugs and blankets and huge number of pillows i think we emptied our house of pillows <laughs> and so we basically built a pillow village and then the three of us just you know, my wife and i and one of our daughters the other one couldn't come just all jumped in the back and were having a grand old time uh and That's of awesome. course that but the vision is hopeless right and the audio was great because well, it was coming yeah. from my car but the you know it was like but having said that it was a, <laughs> a great novelty and something i thought i'd never do again hey um, yeah. so that's great and i i'm sure you're going to enjoy empire because that'll be just awesome yeah. Yeah. We're running out of time, so I just do want to get back to the dad war movies of all time. Um, and while you're thinking about what your answer is going to be, can I just say one thing that I do appreciate in this film that there were sizable roles, at least in logistics, if not on screen, for uh, the British in the uh, blockade running. Now, it was an American <laughs> blockade coming over, and I think that that was completely valid. But I did remember seeing you 571 and just having my jaw on the ground because uh, the whole capturing of the Enigma codes and stuff being an American exercise was just such a uh, rewriting of history. Mm, and an you, did mention, <laughs> you did mention Band of Brothers. Now, mm. Pacific, I'll give you that one, right? Obviously, Australia is, were there, but, you know, okay, it was, you know, a very big American effort, but there were quite a lot of other people fighting in Europe when you guys came over and helped out in yep. WW2. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, so, and so it's nice that, um, which is another reason why I thought Pearl Harbor was outrageous. It was one thing to tell the story of America getting bombed, but to have the Americans going over and saving the English in uh, volunteering in the planes was a little <clears throat> on the nose. I mean, you are talking about a Michael Bay movie, <laughs> so let's, you know. We can, yeah, we can, but anyway, yeah. Uh, I understand American films get 
American budgets, but it is kind of the Enigma codes was one of the greatest victories of uh, Britain mm-hmm. and and the UK in terms of cracking codes and uh, saving lives and finding those uh, Enigma machines on the submarines and having all of the crews agree not to mention it so that it would not get out and everyone sticking by it was such a remarkable thing. So U571 just sucked. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I, I uh, was going to ask you guys for your favourite uh, dad war movies. Uh, so I'm trying to stay away from, you know, things that obviously are uh, personal political pieces and, uh, and comedies. Okay. I've got, well, I've got, I've got a, a I've got go three Matt, that go. are, these are my three top ones. And then I have some other ones that are honorable okay. mentions that I just have to rifle through. Let's see if so you got my top three, ones. my top three are master and commander apocalypse now. And the weird one I think is black Hawk down, which I think is a great, uh, war yeah, movie. but then good. here's my, here's my honorable mentions, uh, on the beach, the Stanley Kramer yeah. film based on the Neville shoot book. Sidney met Sidney Sidney Lamette's failsafe. Oh yeah, I just watched that the Cold, other night. Cold War yeah. movie. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, the 1964 movie uh, Zulu. If you've mm. ever seen that, it's a great oh, movie excellent. with Michael Caine. Uh, the Band of Brothers TV miniseries uh, Enemy at the Gates with snipers chasing one yeah. another around the Battle of Stalingrad. Paths of Glory, uh, Gallipoli. Uh, yeah, Paths of Glory. Really going yeah. for it. Uh, Thin Red Line, Das Boot, and then uh, the one that is. I don't think I can ever watch it again, but I'm so glad I watched it. Is uh, "Come and See"? What's okay, that? I haven't one? seen that. It's a. Uh, it's about a, a. I believe a Russian kid uh, who witnesses like horrible atrocities yeah. um, during the Second World War. Crazy. It's, uh, it's on the Criterion Channel. I think um, I, I think you're of, on the edge of dad movies. There. I think you're. Yeah, I think you've moved to the edge. Oh, maybe that's not a dad one. Yeah, that's like yeah. the dark. Uh, okay. I'll take that. Okay, one I've only got one big one that you've left off your list. But okay, Jason, you go. Um, I will agree with 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 Matt on all of those, and I won't mention any of those. I'll add because I thought of a couple while you were talking. I would add Victory, the Stallone soccer. Oh, that's a good movie. one. Movie. I oh, would really okay. I would add um, Big Red One uh, with Lee Marvin, and of course Mark Hamill, mm-hmm. young Mark Hamill. Uh, I would also add, um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Bridge Over the River Kwai. Uh, oh, that's also cool. starring Ooh, cool. in Alec Guinness. So I'm just doing a little oh, Star Wars thread here. Excellent call. Um, and uh, I had, uh, I mean, you could say Full Metal Jacket, but actually I'm going to say Tigerland, the Schumacher movie. Hmm. Uh, hmm, I haven't seen that one. Because... It's, uh, at the time I was not a big Colin Farrell fan and I, I, I think he does a really good job in that movie. Uh, it's also shot by Maddie, Maddie Libatique, one of his early movies. And it's scored by Nathan Larson, who was the guitar player in one of my favorite bands from DC, Shudder to Think. <laughs> so oh, I got to check that out. Yeah. No, okay. I really add that to my dad repertoire. Yeah. So in my non-dad list that I thought wasn't allowed on the dad dad writes but maybe it is uh was schindler's list and apocalypse now sure um moving back to my dad list i band of brothers i could watch that i don't know how many times um so the three that i had that weren't on your list but the biggest one uh was the great escape 
I sorry, oh, I just yes. love that film yeah. so much. That movie is so good. Yeah, that's a great um, pick. And then my other two were uh, that you, you a lot of ones you mentioned were really good, but uh, A Bridge Too Far, which I thought was yeah. really really good. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And also it was very early in the days when it wasn't so black and white on the goodies and the baddies and the yeah. evil kind of stuff. And then uh, the original Midway, not the new one yeah, that was yeah. done recently, but the original Midway, I that just Robert thought that was, yeah, and it was yeah. so good. It was just such a great, and it was actually a clearer telling of what happened uh, and the frustration and how close things came to tipping in the Pacific that mm-hmm. I was just, uh, I thought that was jaw-droppingly good. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I remember seeing it as a kid. I haven't seen that recently, but I just was, I loved that film at the time that it came out. Yeah. But, yeah, The Great Escape I've definitely seen many times since. Yeah, Banner yeah. Brothers. I did um, love oh, Patton too. We didn't well, mention yeah, Patton. Patton. That's a yeah. good dad one. Patton, yeah. And then uh, we've already mentioned uh, Saving Private Ryan. I don't yeah. think I've ever felt as uh, engaged viscerally in a cinema over a battle sequence as I did on the landing on the Normandy beaches. Oh, jeez, um, yeah. And that was, I, I think the rest of the film was really, really good and especially the ending uh, was really good. There was lots of, you know, really good character development in it. But that opening, or not opening, that, that sort of first act really of the landing yeah. on the beach. Yes. Uh, for the, sh- yeah, and the futility without being um, cynical. Like, I mean, obviously there were a lot of veterans uh, that survived. There were a lot of people that died giving their life and yet there was such a, there were sort of scenes in that where people would, you know, like sort of get their helmet hit and they look at their helmet and put their head up to go, oh, my God, look, my helmet got hit and they get their head to blind off, right? Yeah. It was just like it, it was just everything about Very it was human. just this yeah. is so, yeah, it was so futile and yet obviously not <clears throat> and heroic at the same time. It, yeah. was, it was, you know, and the Germans were, I would have been scared witless had I had those Americans and Allied troops landing yeah. on the beaches coming at me. Um, by the same token, uh that one guy in the film that they let go and then comes back. Oh the yeah, end. I mean it's yeah, it was just uh, yeah. And anyway. I would I would say uh, there's there's a significant beach landing scene in Big Red One also that I think is you know uh, that was you know uh, where they where they they build the big pipe snake that they keep pushing so they can shoot stuff up the mm-hmm. pipe. You know what I mean to get under right. under stuff which they do in. They do that in in Saving Private Ryan also, but Private Ryan, yeah. But but Great Isn't Escape, that Lee Marvin and, and Mark Hamill, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I was gonna say the music from Great Escape, but also the whistling from uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai. Yeah, well, like Bridge oh, Over the yeah. River Kwai is a masterpiece. Yeah, that that bit at the end where he realizes what he's done at the end of the Bridge Over the River Kwai. I mean, it is just. Yeah, I need to like, watch that again. I was, you stand up. If you're watching it at home and you're kind of like yelling at the screen, it's although, like, what although are you doing? I'm going to throw out another dad war movie that I only watched. And I think I might have talked about this on the last show we did or maybe not. But I only watched it in April maybe for the first time ever. And I know I'll get shot. I'll go to movie jail for this. But is <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia. Oh yeah, I I had I had for whatever reason it had escaped my viewing uh, tractor beam, and I had never seen just it. A, and just a little you gotta film. Have a, you got to have a few blind spots. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it was it it, it is a obviously a stellar film, but a a war movie nonetheless. It is funny though with uh, my kids who are kind of twenty ish up and around that area but they've got friends and occasionally something will come up over a movie and i'll make a reference to a movie that i think 
everyone on the planet has seen. I know it could be like uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind or it yeah. could be like, you know, and, and they'll be like, what's that? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, your parents <laughs> have like, failed. Yeah. Yes, your parents yeah, have failed. Yeah, your education is a disaster. <laughs> so my kids did point out that early on, I, uh, when they were much younger, I put on Monty Python and then fell asleep in the chair as dads do. And, of course, they had the whole nude scenes <laughs> yeah. and they're like sitting there going, uh, Dad, yeah. Dad, I don't think we're going to be watching this. I think Mum's going to be happy that you let us watch this. And I was like, you know, head out uh, completely asleep. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, Monty <laughs> Python, very funny. Yes, yes, yes. There you go, girls. Um, anyway, it's been great uh, talking to you guys. Um, I think, Matt, you have some interest in some retro shows coming forward that you've been suggesting, which sounds we've like a good idea. We've been kicking a couple around. Yeah, maybe, uh, I don't know if we want to say what we've been talking about, but a couple possible retro shows we could do in the uh, not too distant, maybe. Yeah. So are you back at college? Tell us what you're up to, Matt. Uh, school supposedly starts August 17th. Uh, and we're supposed to run until uh, our Thanksgiving holiday. So we're going to try to do a compressed semester. Um, I've heard very different things. I'm not sure if we'll be back. I kind of don't think so, but um, it depends. We've had um, uh, a pretty exciting summer here, though. All the uh, Confederate war monuments uh, came down here in Richmond, Virginia, which is really exciting uh, news, in my opinion. I think it's it's a great thing that's happened. And a lot of my students have been involved in that. And the rest of the summer here, I've just been uh, really hanging out, being, uh, you know, trying to be a, a dad, speaking of dad movies, and, um, you know, working on a few little research projects. But everything else is A-OK here. And uh, Jason, what about you? Tell me that you haven't already managed to get your hands on an R5 before me. Uh, no, but I did buy a Komodo uh, Ooh, okay. a while back. I read uh, yeah, Red Komodo. Um, and no, I do have some unnamed friends who have played with the R5 and find it to be quite, uh, interesting. Delicious. Uh, and, uh, although there is an A7R, A7S3 coming out this week, I think maybe. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, we're talking about the Canon, new Canon camera, which is like, uh, yeah. In a generational sense, think of what happened when the yeah. um, Canon 5D Mark II. Uh, came out. Mark II came out. Yeah, 8K, 8K raw mirrorless. Yeah, 120 frames a second. A 4K. 4K or yeah, yeah. Uh, if it doesn't overheat uh, and melt in your hand, but we'll see. It's not like it's not meant to be a uh, a kimono. It's not meant to be a yeah. workhorse. Uh, you know, camera that you would use on a film shoot. But yeah, having no, said mean, that, be... imagine being able to pull out from a an 8K clip an 8K still frame. That would yeah. still be jaw-dropping. Yeah, no, it's I, I've heard many good things about it, so I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what happens with that. Uh, yes, and and you and your brother are working or not working? Where are you at? With New York? Uh, we have not been doing too much. I mean, you know trying to spin some stuff up here and there as, as we do, uh, have some new business ideas that we're working on. And, um, but there hasn't been, I mean, there's zero production. We have some stuff, you know, fingers crossed that's in the pipeline in the next month or so that if, you know, New York holds strong, we'll be able to get through, uh, some potential volumetric work that I think is going to be exciting. Um, and, um, yeah, it's been it's been a, a, a reasonably fast four months here, 
in New York since March 13th ish. Um, and I'm interested to see what happens sort of standing by <laughs> to respond. Well, like, are you going to virtual Seagraph? Uh, yeah, I will. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of work with neural rendering and, uh, what some people would call deep fakes, but I don't call them that cause it's like a different type of rendering and stuff. And, um, there's some interesting stuff there at Seagraph. Uh, the volumetric stuff is also really interesting. Um, not unrelated in some respects, uh, so much machine learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, as you know, my thing is digital humans. And so I've been doing work in that area, but I think we're out of time. So I'm going to say thank you so much, Matt and Jason for being with us. And thank you guys so much uh, for listening. If you've got uh, favorite dad movies that we completely missed and you're screaming at your, uh, at your iPhones or your headphones and saying, how could they have missed this film? please uh, let us know what that is. Also, if you'd like us to uh, to review something else or go on to something else, we're always open to ideas. As we say, we've got a few ideas. We've been toying with, um, I want to do Picard, but that's just me. I'm a big Trek fan. Um, but anyway, coming up, uh, we have a bunch more shows in the pipe, but I want to thank you guys for being with us. Thank you uh, for listening. And guys, uh, we'll uh, hopefully uh, return with some perhaps slightly less dad movies in the future, yeah? <laughs> Maybe we should do mum movies next and, uh, and, uh, yeah. Would that be sexist? I don't think so. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, guys. Catch you on the loop. See you guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.